0: So if you have your Bibles, you can open to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, and we're going to go to verse 6. And we will focus on that, but before we do, we first need to be introduced to a very wild man. I love all these wild characters in the Bible, don't you? Imagine if everybody was just kind of plain and vanilla. But they're interesting men of God, because this wild man plays a very big role in this passage that we're going to look at. And his name is John, John the Baptist. He's a central figure in scripture, and here is why. Because throughout the Old Testament, God sent prophets to speak to the people on his behalf. The last three prophets God ever used in the Old Testament to speak to the world on his behalf were the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Some like to pronounce him Malahachi. I pronounce him Malahachi because that way I know I'm, I'm writing it the right way, <laughs> right? But when, when they were done speaking on God's behalf, God stopped speaking for an entire 400 years. That's a long period of time yeah. for the children of Israel to not hear from God. No prophet in the land. No voice from God. It's called the 400 silent years. That's the period between your Old Testament and your New Testament, there exists a 400 period of silence. No divine word from God, no divine promise from God, no divine affirmation from God. It was like heaven became silent. And 400 years later, out of the desert comes a voice, the voice of John the Baptist. But this voice came preaching. This voice came calling to repentance. This voice, the Bible says, came warning the world. He called them to prepare themselves because the Messiah was on his way. The Bible says he came shouting out of the desert. Now, I, I think Hollywood should one day make a great movie out of this man, John the Baptist. How interesting was this man? I'd like us to listen from the book of Matthew, how Matthew explains John the Baptist and his preaching. A very, very central figure, and you'll see a little bit later why he is so center to Judaism and Christianity. But let's go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. You can just sit and listen, because I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation. It says in verse 1, In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching his message, which was... Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, and I quote, this is in the Old Testament, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness. (laughs) Oh, how it would be wonderful to just see that moment. Here's this voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for Him. Verse 4 says, John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all over Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes! He explains. (laughs) Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turn to God. Don't just say to each other, Oh, we're safe. For we, descendants of Abraham, that means nothing. For I tell you, says John, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the tree. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I am not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff. Let me just say this. He said... That Jesus will come He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's ready to, now He's going to explain the Holy Spirit and fire. He's going to separate the chaff from the wheat or the the, the chaff from the wheat with the winnowing fork. Then He will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into the barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire, baptizing with Holy Spirit and with fire. It's amazing. This story of John the Baptist is a turning point in the spiritual reality of humanity. See, John the Baptist was not a Dale Carnegie course graduate, that's for sure. He was not somebody who would be able to blend with today's culture as we know it. No, he for sure would cause a stir if he was around today. If you had to imagine Pastor John the Baptist, he'd have very few people like him. (laughs) Imagine being in John the Baptist's church if he was the pastor. After all, he was a man sent by God. Sent by God. Not everybody's sent by God. But yeah, that kind of person. You know when somebody's sent by God, so now let's look at John the Baptist and how he fits into the picture as we continue studying our portion in the Gospel of John written by the Apostle John. So you'll find that back in the day, the, the name John was very, very common, right? And so you have to uh, uh, know that the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. but. John the Baptist was that voice shouting in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, repent of your sins, be forgiven and be baptized. And so here, the Apostle John, in his gospel, he is now writing about this John in the desert. In John chapter 1, verse 6, we'll pick it up there, thirteen. That's the portion we'll look at today. It says, a man came, one sent from God, And his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light. Capital L, the personification of light is Jesus himself. He came to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. John was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Jesus created the worlds, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word today. Lord, I pray that You open our our hearts, open our minds, open our understanding so that we too can see, perceive, and respond to all that the Holy Spirit is teaching us through His Word, Your Word, who is God. Amen. Today we will learn, number one, (coughs) how is it that God... 2,000 years later today, still speaks through John the Baptist. How is he still speaking to you and I and the world around us through this man, John the Baptist? Number two, what are people's three different reactions when introduced to the light of Christ? In this portion, we are going to see very clearly how every single human being reacts one of three ways when they are introduced to this light capital L, the personification of light, Jesus Christ himself. Number three, we're going to learn about what does it mean to accept Jesus. People always say, "Um, you know, I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was four years old. Well, what does it mean to accept Jesus? And then number four, we're going to talk about on what premise does God actually save a person? Why is one brother saved and another not? Why is one neighbor saved and theirs is not? They all have an opportunity. They look at creation and they realize there has to be, therefore, a creator. But why is only one compelled by that knowledge, but the other one ignores it completely and lives as if there is no creator, even though they look at creation every day? So on what premise does God save a person? So therefore, we're going to go to our very first verse, verse 6 and 7. Actually, we'll do the first two verses. Verse 6 and 7 of John chapter 1, it says, A man came, one sent by God, or from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. All might believe through him we'd like to exegete that verse, pull out of that verse exe- everything the Holy Ghost is saying to us in that verse, or those two verses. The first thing we see is that there are three very specific reasons why John the Baptist was sent by God. Because if we can see the reason why John was sent, we can pull from it the message of God through John to us. What is God trying to tell us by this person, John the Baptist, who ate locusts and honey, wearing clothes made with camel hair and a leather belt, shouting in the desert. What does it mean to you and to me? What is God telling us? Well, the first is that John came to point to the light. He came to point to the light. He came as a witness to testify about the light. Number two, he came to testify. Well, the first one, he came to point to the light. Let me say this. So that all might believe in him. That's what it says. So that all might believe in him. Number two, he came to testify about the light, leaving the entire world without an excuse. If somebody testifies of a truth to me, I am without an excuse in regards to that truth. I can never again say I didn't know. This is huge. This is incredibly important. He came to testify about the lie. In other words, that voice crying in the desert leaves the whole entire world without an excuse nobody can ever say I didn't know number three he came to prove the spiritual hardness of those who saw Jesus the spiritual hardness of those who saw Jesus who heard him testify And after seeing Jesus and hearing John testify that He is the light, they still denied Him. So John came to prove that men's hearts were so hard that in light of seeing Him, hearing about Him, seeing His witness and His testimony, they still went, I don't care, I don't want Him. Why? Their hearts were that hard. And John came to prove their hearts were hard by bringing them this opportunity. This is, this is so important. You see, nobody will ever be able to blame anybody else, including God, for their guilt of rejecting Christ. As they rejected Christ, of this, in, in, in light of this witness, John, they incur upon themselves the guilt for their own lostness. Every person who ever misses eternal life and enters their eternal damnation will be 100% guilty and deserve all of what they receive. They will be guilty for it. God is not. Nobody else is guilty for somebody's lostness. They are. Because there's a witness who testified to this truth that Jesus is the light. And, and, and they all went, no. And God said, okay, just so you know, you incurred upon yourself 100% of the guilt for your own future eternal damnation. God's not responsible for people going to hell. Don't ever blame Him. every person who rejects the light that John testifies about has had sufficient warning back then and today. They've had sufficient, they have sufficient knowledge back then and today of the light. They have sufficient opportunity back then all the way through history of humanity to accept the light, accept Christ as the Messiah. And those who ignore John's warning, disregard the knowledge John was preaching and rejecting the opportunity that was given, which is to accept Christ as the Messiah, they are therefore 100% responsible for their own eternal consequences. Let's go to verse 8. It says, He was not the light, John was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The idea of being a witness that testifies um, you know, should not be taken lightly. <coughs> about two years ago, three years ago uh, my best friend from South Africa, South Africa came to visit and, and we, my wife and I took them downtown and we were downtown for about a half an hour when we, when we witnessed an accident two cars collided right in front of us and as we saw this play out it plays out so quickly doesn't it it's like huh, we're just wow, that all just happened right there the moment it happened, one man f- out of the first car, he jumped out of his car. He was laying on the ground. And then he jumped up, and he ran over to the second car that hit him. And he pulled that second driver out of his car, and he started punching him and beating him up. I mean, it was, it was violent. You just saw blood everywhere. Myself, my wife, my best friend, Andrew, and his wife, Clara, we ran over to try and help unsuccessfully, this man's anger had overtaken him. And he was just beating up this cab driver that hit him. And uh, as much as we tried, unsuccessfully so, the sirens started sounding from a distance as the police cars were coming our way and as the ambulance was coming our way. Because <coughs> I had called 911. And as the cars came closer, this guy that was beating up the cab driver. He ran back to his car, where his car was, he fell back on the ground, and he lay down, <laughs> <laughs> pretended to be gasping for air, <gasps> like that. <clears throat> well, <laughs> And I'm standing, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. <laughs> I'm like, hey, stop. <laughs> what do you think you're doing? And so the first, the cop comes running up, and I say, he's lying. He's lying. He says, I see he's laying down. I'm saying, no, he's lying. He's not telling the truth. And, and they said, Well, we have to do this. The ambulance showed up, and this guy got neck braces put on him, and he's in a stretcher, and they're carrying him into the ambulance, and off they go. And I walked up to the police officer. I said, Sir, please, here are my details. Here's my card, everything. I need to be a witness to testify as to what just happened here. And so, needless to say, I was, um, you know, I was part of that. Uh, that court hearing and I testified to the truth. This man faked his injury. (laughs) (laughs) And to be an eyewitness, I wanted to tell you that story because it's so important for us to understand what it means to be a witness. John was a witness who testified of something. There was a truth he knew and he testified of that truth. And all of humanity can either accept that testimony of that truth or rejected and be responsible for how they responded to the truth that was revealed to them. And so to be an eyewitness is to testify, or to be an eyewitness that testifies is to commit your name to a specific truth, is to commit to that truth. As I raised my hand in court, I testified, I committed to the truth I'm telling in regards to that scenario. To be an eyewitness that testifies is to align yourself with the truth you saw and you know. That is what it means to be a witness, to testify. It is to clearly and publicly take sides. I mean, there there were no two ways about it. I very clearly, in court, publicly took sides. I was a witness testifying to that truth. He lied. It is to give up the option of remaining neutral. You've seen that happen. That kind of similar scenario takes place, and then people kind of walk the other way. I just don't want to be involved. I just don't want to be part of. They just run away. They do not want to be a witness that then is called upon to testify. Why? Because they don't want to have to take sides, be involved. They want peace. So to be an eyewitness that testifies is to commit your name to truth, your reputation to truth, is to throw yourself into the middle of disagreement. It's it's to align yourself with the truth that you saw, the truth that you know. It's to be clearly and publicly taking sides. This is truth and this is not. It's to give up your option of remaining neutral. Now, do you know that the Bible calls you and I to be witnesses of Jesus Christ? John was the first witness of Jesus Christ, crying in the desert, shouting and calling people to repentance, to make a way in their lives for this Messiah who's about to walk out on the scene. Just as He was a witness, you and I have been called to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. John's life speaks of so much. And there's so much God is teaching us through His life. But I want to also encourage you to watch out for people who always choose to remain neutral. You know them. People who work hard at always being in the center of, uh, uh, in, in the middle of every argument. They, they, they never take sides. They, they see truth, but they'll turn a blind eye. Why? Because they are not witnesses of the truth that they see and know. And there's a reason for it, because they love acceptance more than they do the truth. And that's what we see in the world today, especially in Christendom. They love acceptance more than what they love, the truth of God. Because to deliver the truth uh, makes you unaccepted for most part, doesn't it? Jesus said, they hated me, therefore they will hate you. So if somebody wants to remain neutral on a biblical issue, they are unwilling to testify of the truth. I don't know about you, but wouldn't you just love to see John the Baptist interviewed <laughs> on mainstream media these days? I'd love to see him enjoy Bihar on The View. Go, go at it. No holding back. A voice in the desert, screaming, make way for the Lord. Let's go to verse 9 through 11. It says, this was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. Let me ask you, how many people have been enlightened? All, every person. This is the true light coming into the world, enlighten every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not accept him. Okay, so this is complicated, but important. Every person knows that there is a God. The Bible says that the atheist, the fool, says in his heart there is no God and that he knows he's lying to himself. No one looks at the creation and goes, there's no creator. Just like every person looks at a painting and goes, there has to be a painter. Just as every person that looks at a building goes, there must be a builder. So every person wakes up every morning, they look at creation, and they go, there must be a creator. But it doesn't mean they won't reject him. It's the fool that says in his heart, there is no God, there is no creator. And that's why it says, this was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. Every person stands guilty before God. No one can say, I did not know. No one can say that. Because they see creation, and there was John the Baptist. It says, he was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Here we have the creator entering his own creation. He stands outside of creation, outside of time. He's the uncreated creator who chooses to enter his creation, And His own creation, therefore, now was divided into three very distinct categories with three very distinct responses to Him. First, He mentions that the world who did not know Him, they did not know Him. He entered and they did not know Him. They were willfully blind. Then it says, and He came to His own and His own rejected Him. His own, the Jews who knew Him did not accept Him, rejected Him instead. Then verse 12 and 13 says that He gives us a third category of people. It says, But as many received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in His name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So from verse 9 through verse 13, we see this. Here comes the uncreated Creator, enters His own creation, And as He enters His own creation, there were three very distinct categories. The first are those who did not even know Him, did not recognize Him, blinded to Him. Second category, His own, the Jews, who went to Moses and the prophets and went, wow, He is fulfilling all that the prophets told us about. Cannot be. It cannot be, he heals on on the Sabbath. Cannot be. We're going to reject him. So his own rejects him. That's the second category. And then the third category says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So here we want to talk about receiving Jesus. You see, the Bible actually says that they received him. And in the same way, you and I need to receive Jesus. However, receiving Christ needs to be the biblical way of receiving Him, not the pragmatic way of receiving Him. There are two ways today in Christendom of how people receive Christ. One is the Bible way, the second one is not. Let's talk about the second one. The second one of how people receive Christ, which is not scriptural, is by reciting a prayer somebody else wrote. You can go to a you know, Greek Orthodox, you can go to Eastern Orthodox, or you can go to Catholic, uh, Romanism, and you can, get, you can get prayers and you can just recite them, and sometimes you use beads and so forth, right? And then now, the church does very much something similar. They go, okay, forget the beads. Take my hands and say this. It's very much the same kind of thing and that's not necessarily a surefire way of anybody receiving Jesus. I'm not saying nobody has ever received Jesus by praying. I'm just saying that's not necessarily an example we find in Scripture anyway from cover to cover. You don't actually find that there, right? This was a pragmatic way in which we were able to bring people through a process... From As they walk through the church doors, we can pray this prayer with them, affirm that they are therefore now saved, which also is another, not something we were ever called to do. Nowhere had, did, was I told to affirm somebody's salvation for them. I was told, like the Apostle Paul, to encourage people to go and test yourself and to, to see if in fact you are in the faith. That's my job, to encourage you to go test yourself, to see if in fact you are in the faith. Is that what the Apostle Paul said? Is that what he wrote? Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody know that verse? <laughs> okay. Okay. So we were told to go and test ourselves to see if in fact we're in the faith. Is my repentance real? Do I actually live for Him or do I just say that I do? Is this a real thing? And so, to receive Christ is biblical. However, receiving Christ is not the same as reciting a prayer somebody else wrote. Or repeating a prayer somebody else is leading you in so you can parrot the words after them. That's not the biblical format for receiving Jesus. I'm not saying nobody ever got saved that way because the person who was Uh, the person who was enlightened by God at the moment and prayed and put his faith in Jesus by turning away from himself, that person got saved. They may have gotten saved by raising their hand and walking the aisle. I'm not saying people can't get saved that way. I'm just saying that's not proof of salvation. Yeah, in spite of all of our pragmatism to lead people through a process through the doors, get them to raise their hand, fill out a card, follow up on them, get them to serve somewhere in the church, and now they are part of our church family. That, that whole process there is not, nec- it's, it's a pragmatic way of doing things, right? But let's look into what he said right here in verse, verse 12 and 13 of what it means to receive Jesus. How many of you are interested in knowing? Yeah? Okay. Okay. So if it's not that, then what is it? What does it mean to receive him? The apostle John actually clarifies himself in that same sentence that we just read. In other words, to have a clearer understanding of those who received him, one has to allow the second statement to explain that first statement. The second statement that he says, please don't go there, thank you. The second statement explains the first statement. He says, but as many as received him. First statement. Now he says what's going to happen to them. To them he gave the right to become children of God, right? Th- okay, so that's what's going to happen to those who received him. But now se- this second statement explains the first one. Those who believe in his name explains as many as received him. Those who believe in his name And as many as received him is the same miracle that produces the promise, which is that he gave them the right to become children of God. You see that? Those who believed in his name are the very same ones who are receiving him. Therefore, to believe in His name is to receive Him. One and the same thing said in two different ways. To have faith in Him is to receive Him. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Faith is described as receiving Jesus. It is the empty cup placed under the flowing stream, the penniless hand held out for heavenly arms. That's faith. Faith is described as receiving Jesus. It is the empty cup placed under the flowing stream, the penniless hand held out from heavenly arms, receiving Him. Piper clearly explains this idea of receiving Jesus in a different way. He says receiving Jesus means that when Jesus offers Himself to you, when that happens, you welcome Him into your life for what He is, not for who you want Him to be. And herein lies the danger of saying to somebody, just pray this prayer off to me. Because that person is receiving the Jesus they want to save them from hell. Or the Jesus they want to save them from this divorce. Or the Jesus they want to save them from hardships in life. Or the Jesus they want to save them from financial distress. Or the G, Je- you know, they want, but in order to receive Jesus, we have to receive the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus of our own making. And to have faith in Jesus is to have faith in the Jesus of Scripture. Because having faith in the wrong Jesus is not salvation. And this is what happens in Christendom. Many come to faith in the Jesus of their imagination, and then when they when they have to come to scriptures, they can't agree with that Jesus. It's just not it's just not acceptable. We see it, we see it on to- late night talk show hosts all the time. No, he does not judge anyone, he's love. No, he does not have opinions over how, who's supposed to love who and who's supposed to get married. No, he does not. He's love. He, he, he's kind. He's gracious. That's all he is. And then the Jesus of the Bible goes, no, he's a just judge. And then they go like, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Now, right now, in, in culture, the whole argument about the, the heart of the gospel is this the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. The whole heart of the gospel is that the penalty against your sin fell upon your substitute, Jesus Christ. And who issues that penalty? The judge of the ages, which is God the Father. So God the Father penalizes your sin. Jesus intercedes, and he crushes his own son on your behalf, and now they go like, no, 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 wait, no, 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 no. I can't serve a God who's guilty of cosmic child abuse. How will a father who loves, cares, and is compassionate allow his wrath against you to crush his own son? Would you do it? No, you won't. Why do you think God would? Cosmic child abuse. Can't worship him. I'd rather worship a God... A bit, if I the one guy said it this way, why would I worship a wrathful God that takes vengeance upon sinful man? Why would I worship him if I can imagine a better one? And so here's the modern day sin of all the ages. Okay, today's greatest sin of all is when man becomes the judge of God. And how does man become the judge of God? He turns to scripture and he goes, nope, wrong, that's not love. And God goes, wait a minute, who, who do you think you are? He goes, well that's not good, cause me child abuse, is, child abuse has never been good. I don't care in what, in what terminology you put it God, that is not good. You are good and that is not good. Therefore, you are not him. see. And in Jesus' eternal wisdom, when the rich young ruler came to him, the rich young ruler said what? Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, stop right there. Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? What was Jesus saying? You're not the judge of what's good and what's not. I'll tell you what's good. And I'll tell you what's good, not you. Well, what must I do to you have your eternal life? Take everything you've got, sell it, and give it to the poor. I can't do it. OK, well, there you go. <laughs> God took everything he had and gave it to the spiritually poor, you, and me. So don't say good because you you can't judge good. I'll tell you what's good. And in the same way, in every major terminology today that has been revised, for instance, love, they they look at the scriptures and they judge God. God, that's not love. If there was love in your heart, there wouldn't be a hell in the future. And so men come to scriptures and they judge God and judge God and judge God. And man will ultimately be judged for that reason, judging God. Isn't that what happened when when John pointed out out the light? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And the Pharisees went, healing people on the Sabbath. How dare he? God will never use a sinner like that. So ultimately, we will be judged on how we judged Him. And that's why when it comes to accepting Jesus for who He is, we accept Him for who He is completely as Scriptures give given to us, as He is revealed in Scripture. That is how we accept Him. And until we accept Him for who He is, We're not accepting Him at all. Pray this prayer with me. You're saved. Go ahead. Your spirit's saved. Your body sins, but that's okay. You just lose a couple of rewards when you get to heaven. That's not salvation, folks. Piper says it this way. He says, receiving Jesus means that when Jesus offers Himself to you, you welcome Him into your life for what He is. If He comes to you as Savior, Savior, you welcome him as savior. If he comes to you as leader, you welcome him as leader. That's accepting him. If he comes to you as counselor, you welcome his counsel. If he comes to you as authority, you welcome his authority. If he comes to you as king, you welcome him as ruler. Those who received him, received him for who he was. They had faith in who he was, and that he was sufficient to be my savior, to be my leader, to be my counselor, to be my authority, to be my king, to be my priest, to be my God. And there's no possible way to accept him for who he is and it making no difference in your life. None at all. So, why receiving Jesus is not adding him to your life and so have fire insurance one day. <laughs> Most people add Jesus to their life. You see no difference, none at all whatsoever. And that's the message that John preached. Remember when John was shouting at the, at the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He says, repent and prove that you have repented by the way you live, by the way you have changed. It's the only possible way of knowing. And that's when, G- when, when Paul said, now test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Did did your life turn around? (laughs) Are you actually serving God now? Are you actually serving Him, or do you just say, I belong to that church? I go to that church. I prayed the prayer in 1972. (laughs) And if you did, and you got saved, it would still be evident. I can't tell you how of an impact John the Baptist has had on the history of God's saving plan of humanity. We're going to close with this last verse. And I'm just going to touch on it, because next week we will continue in it. We will continue in it. So Let me get to that last verse by reading to you what we are studying today. John 1, verse 6, 13, A man came sent from God, and his name was John. He was a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. No one will be with excuse. Everyone will be without excuse. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, John. Excuse me, Jesus. He was in the world, and the world came into being through Him, and yet the world did not know Him. He came into His own, and His own people did not accept Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed in His name, who were born, here's the final verse, who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. And here we answer the question, on what premise does God reach out and save a person? On what premise does God reach out and save that person? On what premise does He insert Himself and he intercedes between God's falling wrath on a sinner, at what point and on what premise does he insert himself and take upon himself the very wrath of God against your sin? Who does he do that for? Upon what premise? That's what it says right here. Those who believed on his name and accepted him were given the right to become children of God. And here he says... Those who were born, not of blood, not because I am a Jacobs born in my family line, not on the premise of blood, not on the premise of a person's own will. It's what it says. I don't know what to do about it, but that's what it says. Not on the premise of the flesh, on how hard somebody tried to be saved, but on one premise and one premise alone, on the premise of God's will. God wills it, and it happens. And every man that rejects him incurs upon himself 100% of the guilt for rejecting Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Our God is sovereign, but man remains responsible. Man remains responsible, and that's why the call goes out. Like John, run to Him. Come to Christ. Knock and keep on knocking. Ask and keep on asking. Search and keep on searching. Run to Him. Run to Him and accept Him. In other words, put your faith in Him for who He is all of who He is, and He is who the Bible says He is. Nothing more, nothing less. Amen. Did you get something out of the Word? Amen. Amen. It's just wonderful walking through God-breathed Scriptures and allow the Holy Spirit to create the narrative of what He's explaining from beginning to end instead of coming up with the topic and then trying to wrap Scriptures around it and explain it. Not that that's wrong, but it's certainly not the superior way of studying the Word. So I want to really encourage you, next week we're going to pick up right there with verse 13, and we're going to continue the narrative of Scriptures. Uh, but I want you to bring your Bibles. If you have an NASB then uh, translation, then that'll be wonderful. But bring your own Bible because I think some of these things you have to see for yourself, underline because. At any point when, in fact, you say, Jacques, that cannot be true, all right, <laughs> but then what is true? That, it cannot be true about that verse. My question is, okay, what is true about that verse? And I'm happy and open to receive the truth about a verse. But if it's in your Bible, then you have to face off with it, all right? It's not between you and I. It's between you and the very Word of God you hold in your lap. What are you going to do with Jesus? the Jesus of the Bible that's the question that's the question let's pray father god today